News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Brooklyn, and over the next stretch, we at FAQ are going to be interviewing as many of the hundreds of mayoral candidates as we can. Today, Chrissy and Harry are talking to Andrew Yang. Rumors about his mayoral campaign started circulating even before he pulled out of the Democratic primary, the presidential primary, and just before Christmas, he filed the paperwork for a mayoral run here. He launched his campaign on January 14th with a video directed by Darren Aronofsky walking out to the podium to the Drake song, God's Plan. Yang is attempting to shake things up in the field with a campaign co-chaired by fellow Democratic disruptor, newly elected congressman, and not to mention FAQ guest, Richie Torres. And a few of the big ideas Yang has proposed are as follows. One, the basic income trial where the neediest 6% of New York City residents would get between $160 and $170 per month, partially funded by private philanthropic dollars and at a cost to the city of $1 billion. A, quote, civilian commissioner, end quote, for the NYPD, gang meaning coming from outside the NYPD to head the NYPD, a casino on Governor's Island, a vacancy tax for landlords who have empty storefronts, and the creation of a public bank, the People's Bank of New York. If you have a comment about today's episode, you can call and leave us a message, and we might incorporate it into another episode. Who knows? The number to call is 917-475-6010. So without further ado... It's a Thursday afternoon... And we are joined by Andrew Yang. Welcome. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Christina. I appreciate you having me on a great deal. Welcome, welcome. It's, uh, it's great, great to have you on. Let's jump right in. To start off, fill our listeners in. Why are you running for mayor? And uh, what do you bring into this race that the other dozen or so candidates are not? I'm running for mayor because our city's in a deep, dark hole, and we need to try and get out of it as quickly as possible. And a lot of folks who know me know I'm a numbers guy. Uh, some of the numbers that we've all seen and experienced in different ways, 25,000-plus uh, New Yorkers dead, uh, over half a million infected, missing 700,000 jobs plus, 60 million missing tourists, uh, who used to support over 300,000 jobs, an unemployment rate at twice the national average. So the question is, how can we come back from this in a way that helps restore the city that we love uh, in a way that, frankly, addresses some of the problems and inequities that existed before COVID? Uh, and, and COVID has been, to me, an unveiling of just how tenuous uh, and fragile um, many New Yorkers had it. And of course, the People who've been victimized most by the pandemic have been communities of color and people that had lower uh, levels of resources, lower levels of access to healthcare and other basics. Uh, so I'm running for mayor because I think I can speed up our recovery. I think I can help. And you have a, not a universal, but a, a basic income idea. 
take our listeners through that, and then I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about it, please. Sure thing. But before we we do that, I just wanted to, like, as I was reading about your background, Harry, you and I had spent a little bit of time together. But Christina, I wanted to commend you on the Amsterdam News and the column that you have. I had a friend, Catherine Kelly, who uh, whose family owned one of the biggest Black-owned publications in Michigan, um, Michigan Citizen, and that publication um, unfortunately did not survive over this last number of years. I think I spoke to Harry about this, but I'm a huge fan of local journalism, of community-based journalism. I know that historically, uh, Black-owned publications were an enormous pillar uh, of many communities, and the fact that they've all had such a hard time, uh, it's awful. Like It's something that I wish we could change. And I'm actually talking right now to, to folks about how the city's media assets might be able to help buttress local media. Uh, and it's funny because in New York City, like you'd think if anyone could have local media survive, it would be the biggest city in the country. But even here, I know local media is not um, thriving in the way that I wish it were, because uh, I think local media is vital in, in many ways. So I just wanted to, to say that, Christina, because I, I admire um, a lot of the work that you do individually. Thank you. Appreciate it. So are you looking at something like what Governor Murphy has done in New Jersey or what sort of model are you thinking about in which uh, the city government could help buttress or support local media? Well, well, it's early. So if you look at nationally, and this would help us too, uh, there's something called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act in Congress um, that's trying to pump billions of dollars to help make local publications more sustainable. And to me, this is a no-brainer because if you look at the forces that have driven polarization up in our country, um, I'm going to list, in my mind, the big three of our media landscape. The death of local journalism, because you've had 2,000 newspapers die, and those publications tended to be nonpartisan and unifying. In the absence of local journalism, governance gets worse, fewer people run for office, um, like corruption gets gets worse. Uh, it, it's very, very dark, and, and polarization increases. Um, then you have the polarization of cable news in both directions. And then you have social media as this layer supercharging conspiracy theories and a lot of other nightmarish stuff. So if you were to try to reconstitute our country, you would start with trying to support local media because local media is unifying. It tends to be less polarizing. And there's a bill in Congress that would put billions of dollars into community local journalism, including right here in New York. So that's a national approach. But more specifically, Harry, I was talking about stuff that was not that. Um, it was just, I was told by someone who used to work in this office that the city actually has some media assets. Uh, it has three or four TV stations. It has a printing press. <laughs> it has some things. And so uh, I thought to myself, well, geez, if we have public resources in this direction that could maybe support local journalism, uh, that would be phenomenal because I have a feeling those assets aren't being fully utilized right now. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's early, but hopefully we'll have a plan released in that um, sometime in the next number of uh, days or weeks. It's, it's tricky. And we're actually we're going to get to the NYPD in a minute. Right. They they issue press passes. This has been a headache for uh, reporters and, in fact, for, for the NYPD. For oh, years. oh, by the way, the NYPD should not be issuing press passes. That's another thing I want to say. Like, you know, I mean, talk about having like the wrong, <laughs> like the wrong is the wrong incentive. It's like, look, you know, like that there's an, another way to do that that would not have reporters be afraid to run afoul of the NYPD in order to access various news events. I heard you, I believe, on New York One talking about how you would bring in a uh, civilian commissioner for the NYPD. Can you can you explain what you meant by that? Well, first, I like to try and figure out what's working in another context. Uh, and so if you look nationally, you have a civilian head of the military. And I think most of us agree that that's 
a positive. And we all need to try and help transform the culture of the NYPD. And if you have someone who is born and trained and reared in that culture, then the culture is unlikely to change. I think that cultures change from the top. Uh, you need a leader that is independent of the current um, group. And so to me, having a civilian police commissioner would be enormous, an enormous step towards helping shift the culture of the NYPD, bring in different practices uh, that are from outside of what the NYPD currently does. And it would emulate some of the things that we've seen work on a national scale. Uh, a lot of the New York City issues, it's fascinating because, you know, we're, we're a city, it's like, you know, everything's local, but the scale is really significant. And so I think you have to look for models that have worked elsewhere. So, so in the NYPD, right, the, the commissioner is a civilian administrator. Yes. Uh, the, the chief of department is like the highest, you know, uniform member, yes. like with the military. And then the commissioner answers to the mayor. Yes. So, so what are the, the, the big things in terms of reforming the department and in terms of uh, crime and crime control that you would, you would hold your commissioner accountable for? Well, I think the pattern that we've seen is that uh, you've had a commissioner that is uh, kind of of the police culture. And so when I say civilian, of course, the commissioner is like technically a civilian even now, but I'm saying someone who is not essentially reared in the police department itself, because the frustration that many New Yorkers feel is that when we see a tragedy ensue where there was a, a an abuse or even a, a death at the hands of police, then it seems like there's this bureaucracy that kind of springs up and says, wait, you know, like, well, you, you can't actually uh, hold this officer accountable um, in various ways. And those are the highly visible cases. In the more routine cases, the CCRB is fielding complaints and then advising the police commissioner to say, look, um, you know, we think we need to pursue this complaint or this officer needs discipline. And then the police commissioner, though they have the ability to do so, they haven't often acted on it. Like that, that to me is a frustration that a lot of folks feel. And so you need to have a police commissioner, again, that is independent of the police department in a way that they'll be able to make some decisions to hold officers accountable uh, in a way that some folks in the NYPD would frankly, highly, highly dislike. Uh, and it's hard to do something that your own tribe highly dislikes if you are of that tribe and that's how you came up. So when I'm talking about a civilian Commissioner, that's what I mean, like someone who did not come up within the NYPD. Would you, uh, would you maintain the present size of the NYPD in terms of both budget and personnel? Or what do you think the right numbers are for uh, what the NYPD should be spending on its operating budget and uh, how many officers you think the city needs? Well, we're in a really tough spot right now because when you talk to New Yorkers, uh, public safety and crime, uh, it's either concern one, two or three for a lot of them. Um, but if you look at what's going on with the NYPD, we're spending $6 billion. And I think the most heartbreaking stuff we're spending money on is hundreds of millions in settling civil lawsuits per year, uh, which to me is the most horrendous use of public resources you can imagine. Like imagine spending hundreds of millions settling lawsuits against police officers that could have gone to homelessness services or education or health uh, or anything under the sun, our, our schools. Um, so I think most people would agree that we have been spending too much money on the NYPD in different ways and not enough uh, in, our, in our communities. Um, so the question is, how do we... But the, the lawsuits really are like almost a rounding error, right? Like, like the operating budget, like the cost is personnel. 
it's a it's, it's more than a rounding error, Harry, because you're looking at costs of let's say six billion dollars a year for the uh, NYPD, and then uh, hundreds of millions in civil lawsuit fines, um, you know, in a given year. So that's significant. Like that, this this is more than a rounding error. I mean, this is like real money. Um, and, and to me, as a numbers guy, if I see that the the city is spending, let's call it $200 million on settling civil lawsuits. Like, you know, then that like the scope is even larger because it's not like every time there's an abuse, a successful lawsuit is going to be brought. Do you think we have the right number of police officers really? And or, or more to the point specifically, how many police officers do you think New York needs? I think that New York needs more folks who will show up to situations that are not armed police officers when someone's having a mental health breakdown or a substance abuse related episode or, or a domestic dispute. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are certain instances where you need a police officer 100%, but there are other instances where you do not. And so uh, I think the goal should be to try and channel resources towards these other personnel and community organizations over time. In terms of the number of police officers, I do think we're going to have some very difficult times ahead and that we will likely have to ask every part of the city government, including the NYPD, uh, to find savings and potentially contract uh, or, or shrink. And that would apply to the NYPD as well. How many police officers do we have in the NYPD? No, we have um, maybe 35,000 around that order of magnitude. Um, and And how many... And how many do you think of those civilian officers do we – I think Harry's question was do we need to add or subtract of those 35,000 members? And, I, you know, there's been a lot of general talk about how the NYPD shouldn't be responding to a lot of these calls. Uh, the NYPD's response has been it, it's tricky. It's complicated. You often don't know with uh, with calls for service when you're going to be dealing with an emotionally disturbed person, when when you're dealing with the crime and so on. So, so I think there's a lot of rubber road questions with uh, – you know, specifically what these things mean. And, and then with the balancing act between people are concerned about crime and people would like police reform. And, and I'm sorry to press you. You just happen to be the first candidate we've had on in a bit. Everyone seems to be doing a rhetorical balancing act that, that leaves me very unclear as to where they'd be, uh, where they'd be putting money and what this would actually mean. Well, so here, here's something I want to suggest to everyone is that we have been conditioned to think money, 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 bodies, bodies, bodies. Um, and I, I genuinely do not think that is the right way to think about it. So we have rising crime levels in New York City. And the question is, how can we effectively address them? But like, if you were to say, hey, we're going to like increase the number of officers, does that necessarily decrease crime? It's like, well, you would hope so. But if if the police officers aren't like engaging in the right ways or getting out of their vehicles or like, you know, actually catching bad guys. Uh, and so one of the things that we could very, very clearly see is that the rates of resolved crimes where we actually catch the perpetrator um, is heading in the wrong direction. So that's something that you can hold the NYPD accountable for and say, look, like your job is to help catch perpetrators of crime or keep them from committing other crimes. And when I see rising crime rates in a community like New York City, one of the things I think is that like, let's say that, you know, like, I'm just going to use an example. Um, let's say 10 cars. Wait, get, ten, if, let's say if 10 you're cars holding the NYPD to account, oh, hold, hold on for one second. If you're holding the NYPD to account, this is where this always the rubber in the road always break down for me. Does that mean you're not doing the job? Commissioner is fired. Does that mean we need more officers, less officers? Oh, so the, like, like what does it mean for the no, mayor? No, but, to hold but that to is exactly there? what I'm saying, Harry. It's not like hey, mm-hmm. you're not like solving these crimes, so let's get more officers. 
like like that to me is not uh, necessarily the move you make. You know, I mean, I've run organizations. If you have tens of thousands of people who are who are, who are assigned to, to something and then something's going wrong, you don't look around and say, I need more people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like what you do is you say, look, why is it that we are not able to resolve these crimes like, uh, you know, at a rate that we're excited about? Like who are the people that are most directly resp- responsible? And a lot of the value that happens, I think we all know this from our life experiences, a lot of the value that happens is at that interaction level. Um, so, so you're talking about retraining? Well, so this is the tough part, Christina, is that, so I think most most people listening to this probably agree. So we have 35,000 police officers. There are any number of situations that you would prefer to have uh, mental health counselors or uh, drug addiction counselors or social workers or like, um, you know, violence interrupters show up and not an armed police officer. And so the question is whether you go to a police officer and say, hey, we're going to try and train you in various ways. Now, I a hundred percent believe that police officers need to be trained to try and de-escalate the violence and aggression in the situation rather than accelerate it. Because right now, if you look at the proportion of time spent training to fire your firearm, it's something like 30 times the amount of time you're spent to de-escalate a situation. And I would suggest that de-escalating a situation is as or more valuable and probably comes up uh, hopefully much more often than actually, you know, firing your weapon. Um, so there's a hundred percent. Well, it depends on what neighborhood you live in. Uh, yeah, I mean that that that's probably true. Though I, I actually think in any neighborhood you're going to be de-escalating situations more than you're firing a weapon, unless like you're literally like firing a weapon like every single day, which I don't think is true in any neighborhood in New York City. Um, but uh, the the question really is, if you have this police force, certainly they need to have training to be able to interact with people and try and uh, bring the tension down, not up. But then are you also going to try and pretend, in my mind, pretend that you can turn them into uh, like a mental health intervention counselor or someone like that? And I don't think that's the right move. Like, I I don't think that you can take a police officer and say, look, we're going to turn you into this other thing. We got a whole bunch of issues I want to talk about because I don't want to spend the whole time on policing, but I'm I'm still not clear. So are you talking about, because if you're mayor, on day one, we need to know, are you talking about hiring more social workers Yes. Are you talking about retraining people? Are you talking yes. about hiring mental health prof- professionals? Yes. Are you talking about demoting certain people? Are you talking about decreasing the 35,000 members of the NYPD because we're paying mad money in not just their bad behavior, but in overtime? Like the, the primary is in June. So ostensibly, whoever wins in June possibly walks into Gracie Mansion in November. So I want to know what, like, give me the 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 pointed plan of what it would be if you're mayor and you're in charge of the NYPD, who's the police commissioner and how do we go for that? Because I don't understand how a non-police officer as a commissioner would get any respect from the NYPD because they, they've been able to be a rogue agency for however many decades. Well, that's the wonderful thing, Christina, is that if you have someone who you're accountable to, who has, um, as we know, like very, very significant authority, because that that's the way that the commissioner role is structured. And it would be similar to how is it that our national military respects a commander in chief that uh, may, may not have a military background? Not not national, New York City. No, no, you're New no, York City no that's what I'm you're saying. 110th mayor. But, but if you're looking at trying to change the culture of an organization, and if you were to take as a given, look, there's no way the cops will listen to someone who like didn't come up through the ranks, then I'm going to suggest that that culture will not change the way you want it to. 
Like you need to have, have a leader that is independent of that culture. And will there be officers that struggle with that? Like almost certainly yes. But is that going to help move the department in a positive direction? I believe it will. And the, the goal has to be for us to try and drill down again, not just think of it in terms of dollars and bodies, but like, what are our goals? You know, our goals are to increase public safety, to get crime under control, to arrest the folks that are perpetrating crimes and do it in a way that makes New Yorkers feel safe and valued and not afraid to encounter a police officer that are night, like not have parents of color. be So, so that, that is sure. all these things. Yeah. So how would you deal with the police union? Because the reason you're not the first person who says like, Hey, all the things that you just laid out. Sure. In a fantasy world, obviously that would be great. We're dealing with the NYPD, one of the oldest paramilitary institutions that is like literally founded on anti-black racism. And so, strong, how would strong you, worker protections, strong yes. unions, oh, yeah. uh, like a workforce that? that pushed back against many mayors. And where, by the way, they they fired their weapons last year. Uh, you, you brought that up, and how many shootings in a week in a given neighborhood? Fifty-two times, thirty-four times for all on-duty officers, eighteen times for off-duty ones for for the whole thirty-four thousand. Force. Yes, yes. And so in, if you look, use those numbers, Harry, if they fired their weapons 52 times, like how many times do you think they've been in a situation where they were trying to or they should have been trying to uh, decrease tensions? I'm going to guess that that number is probably in the thousands, <laughs> you know, it, it being New York City. Uh, so, you know, it just goes to show again, um, you know, that, that that's where a lot more energy and attention should be paid. Okay, so can we shift gears just a little bit? Because I don't want to spend our whole time. We don't have you for the whole day. Um, Thank but, you again for for taking the time and coming yeah. on with us. No problem. I, I mean, you two seem tremendous. And like, uh, you know, this to me is a great opportunity. Thank you. Um, so I don't know if you've read some of the coverage of yourself, but, you know, I haven't been. <laughs> I don't know. Some people do. Some people don't. You know, they've got to protect themselves. Um, you know, I don't read comments about myself. But then again, I'm not running for mayor. So I haven't been a fan from when you ran for the presidency for a, for a few reasons. And you probably know this, but I just want to make sure. <laughs> no, I'm being really honest. Because yeah. when you were running for the presidency, you were very clear with the whole like math buttons and the hats and the blue hat crew. And the blue hat crew for me is a little too similar to the red hat crew. Because oh, your supporters no. are pretty, your supporters are pretty bavenous. The only people who call me the N-word are your supporters and Trump supporters. That's the worst thing I've ever parties. heard, Christina. I'm so yeah. sorry to so, hear like, that you associated anything. And there's a whole debate on whether or not you can control your supporters or not. But there is something to be said as to why certain people's supporters attack female journalists, go after people of color who criticize the candidate, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll put that in a bucket. But what made me really upset when you're running for the presidency is the whole math and you were standing on the debate stage and it's like, I'm Asian. I'm good at math. I'm really good at math. I teach math. I'm a black person. I'm a black professional. I'm a black professor. But I've also been a black student in the classroom for over two decades. And it is really damaging when you have teachers, white, black, Asian, other, who go into the classroom who have that mindset of the Asian kids are going to be good at math. Because what that says is the black and the Latino kids aren't. And so there's a starting point that you walk into a classroom with without having said anything, without having doing a workbook, a worksheet, anything, where there's an assumption that you're good at something and I'm not. So what do you tell Black and Latino parents who, if you are the 110th mayor of New York City, where it's like, I have a mayor who essentially is sort of perpetuating this stereotype, I would call it a racist trope, that Asians are good at something because we know when we say one group is good at something, especially something like math and in educational setting, it implies that another group is not good at it. So what do you tell parents about that? And who would you choose as your educational commissioner 
right? The superintendent of New York City Public Schools, of which majority of the kids are kids of color. How would a parent of color, especially a Black or Latino parent, feel comfortable with you as a mayor, having said that several times on the debate stage when you're running for the presidency? Oh, well, thank you, Christina, for um, conveying this to me. Uh, I would be the last person to ever suggest, first, that, that uh, these kinds of generalizations should hold water. Like, to me, trying to poke fun or make light of an idea that millions of very, very diverse Americans would share a particular quality, uh, I thought exposed how like ridiculous it, it was, honestly. Um, and speaking about the Asian American community uh, of New York City, I mean, it's incredibly diverse. There's a lot more poverty in the Asian American community than I think most people appreciate. Um, and so for sure, like the last thing I ever would mean to suggest is that um, that certain people should have like certain notions like coming with them into the the classroom. And I would genuinely feel awful if like others felt like that was what I was doing. Uh, you know, at the time I was trying to advance an anti-poverty platform at a national level. And I thought that making light of some of these stereotypes would expose how ridiculous they were. Uh, but I, I genuinely would feel very, very sorry if people took them as somehow reinforcing tropes that I thought I was frankly helping to dismantle. Um, because if you look at the stereotypes around Asian Americans, one of the things that you don't have on that list uh, is president, or, or I'm going to throw this out there, is mayor. And so I, I thought that like my very run was kind of exposing the ridiculousness of various racial notions and preconceptions. Uh, and like, I, I thought that's what, you know, my joking reference to certain things would also do is like point out how stupid it all is or ridiculous to think that again, millions of Americans can be represented by, uh, you know, like, like just about any broad generalization. Um, but if, right. but but if the it thing had about that negative impact, then like I, I would genuinely feel very, very bad about it. Yeah. Cause that's my worry. Cause people have to be in on the joke if you're doing that. Right. And so, yes, we know that there's lots of data where, people don't consider Asian Americans executive level, right? We see this all the time in the tech world and on the West Coast. And it's like, oh, you can be worker bees, but you can't be an executive. So your run was historic for the presidency. Your run's historic. Well, you know, John Lewis run before you, but your run is still historic for mayor. I'll give you that. But what would you tell parents who say, well, here's one of two things. Either you knew what you were doing and you didn't care, which doesn't seem like that's the case. But what seems to be just as damaging, if not a touch more damaging, which is, you didn't know what you were doing. And we're a city of immigrants filled with all different types of people. What are you going to tell Black and Latino parents when you choose a superintendent and think about our children in New York City, the one, two million who are in public schools, and how we have all the conversations about the SHSAT and the gifted and talented programs and closing schools and opening schools and charter schools and different types of charter schools. How do they feel comfortable with you as the 110th mayor of New York City when that was such a blind spot that so many Black and Latino parents are working against every single day? Well, I would tell Black and Latino parents here in New York City and anywhere around the country uh, that I get it in the sense that I'm a parent uh, of a special needs child. Um, you know, like he needs a lot of support. Um, it, like it, it's very, very difficult for him to do some things that, you know, for other kids would be second nature. But I also deeply, deeply understand just how the deck is stacked against children of color, even before they get into the classroom. You know, I mean, like, if, if you look at what's happening 
in the home in terms of parental time spent with the child, words read to them when they're young, stress levels in the household, nutrition, like the way they spend their time out of school. I mean, the reality is that two thirds of our kids' academic performance is determined outside of the school. And then when you bring them into the school, it's compounded by, as you're suggesting, Christina, that like the teacher is less likely to, to think that the black girl or the brown boy, like, you know, is as good as certain things. Like the whole thing is like this incredible freaking cumulative compounded, like stacking of the deck against kids of color. And New York City's public education has historically been like a real counterweight or like counterforce against that, where people have come up through our public education uh, and gone on to, to do incredible things. Uh, and that's exactly what I want to do as mayor. I want to see to it that our public education system is actually a force in the opposite direction in ways big and small. And I'd like to start before kids get to school. Uh, because, you know, like a lot of the stuff that happens in those early years is really, really key. And if a little boy or girl shows up to school and is behind from day one, especially in this era, because, you know, the, the kids who are getting left behind most brutally right now are the kids who were behind to begin with. Online school has been demonstrated to be 30 to 70% less effective than in-person school. So if you're a little boy or girl of color who is uh, behind, let, let's call it six months or a year before, you're probably behind a year and a half now. Uh, you know, so I get it. Like, and, and I'm deeply, deeply passionate about using our educational system as a way to actually try and make it possible for p kids who people don't think are going to have a path forward to have that path forward. So one more question on schools, and then I think we have two more topics we'd like to turn to. But related to everything uh, you and Christina have just been discussing, I, I know you were talking previously before before jumping in the race about artificial scarcity with the elite high schools and the uh, the SHSATs or the uh, Chassettes. Chassettes. As, uh, you know, I've heard, heard so Scott many Spirit different ways to pronounce like this. I just stick with SHSAT myself. But <laughs> so that two 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 questions here, just. For a quick education conversation. First off, would you immediately uh, remove the SHSATs as the standard for the five schools, the, the American trolls, as against the the three, you know, Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, and Brooklyn Tech that you need to change state law for? And two, how important do you think the elite high schools are as uh, the thing to focus on here? Or, or where would you put the bulk of your efforts uh, when it comes to schools and your chancellor's efforts um, if you're trying to open things up? and uh, eliminate some of this artificial scarcity and ensure that we have high-quality programs for all kids? I mean, you have a school system with over a million children, um, and, and I think we do pay a bit too much attention to the handful of schools at the top, like the three or eight schools. Um, but I also, as you suggested, Harry, think it's ridiculous that we're all getting into this battle of like artificial scarcity. I mean, there is nothing stopping us from creating two specialized high schools in every borough so then if you get into these high schools, maybe you don't have to commute an hour each way, which I'm going to suggest is probably not good for that kid's learning ability or their family uh, environment or the rest of it. So we should create specialized high schools in every borough. Um, I would not abandon the SHSAT, but I do think it is ridiculous to use the SHSAT as the sole determinant of where these kids are going to school. We should be using their academic record, their family background, interviews, essays, 
Uh, you know, I'm a parent, like I've got two boys, they are vastly different from each other, uh, you know, and, and so like imagining that we're going to be able to figure out where someone should go to school based upon like, one test uh, strikes me as just like the incorrect approach. So we need to both enlarge the pie and then also use more holistic data points that would enable us to diversify these high schools to make them more representative of the most diverse city in the world. So I think we should move to money, 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 money. Let's talk about some casinos. Because by and large, casinos have not voted well for the communities around them. But I read the other day that you want to bring casinos to New York City. Walk us through that plan and why it would be great for New Yorkers and how, as mayor, you'd be able to get that done, thinking about your relationship with Andrew Cuomo and Albany and the money that would be needed to make that happen. Thank you, Christina. Um, So we're in a really, really rough spot as a city for the foreseeable. We're looking at a multi-billion dollar budget deficit uh, for every year. Uh, Let's call it five billion. That would be roughly the order of magnitude we're looking at. Uh, But we don't wanna be in a position where we're just cutting costs and trying to cut to success. Um, So I floated an idea about trying to have a city-owned casino in large part because I think the majority of the customers would be tourists. And then if you were to be able to take that revenue and channel it to schools and health initiatives and community services, that struck me as a win. And that would be a win to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, we're, We're in a tough spot and I think we should be trying to do more than just cut costs. But you're 100% right that it's very, very involved. There'd have to be a lot of buy-in from both people in the community as well as folks in Albany. Um, I'd be much more after it if I thought that the city could keep the lion's share of the money. Um, I understand the realities of what casinos are and are not um, in communities. And that often that they suck money out of the hands of people who are poor in a community and then the money disappears someplace else. In New York City, I do think there's an opportunity for it to be the reverse, because we're a city that, at least in good times, 60 million tourists visit. And if you get some more money out of their pockets, then you'd like funnel that into poorer neighborhoods here in New York City. I think that's a win. But it it was simply an idea. It's not something that we can, frankly, make happen without a lot of people buying into it. Um, But I do think it's worth exploring because we don't want to just be in a position where it's... Um, trying to figure out what we can do without. Yeah, I just feel like that's the pitch that everyone uses when they want a casino. But we know the surrounding community or the existing community very rarely does well. I mean, we can look at the decimation of Atlantic City. We can look at the high rates of, of uh, foreclosures and, and people who are in, you know, Gamblers Anonymous. I just feel like what you laid out, and I I, I know it's, it's the beginning, you know, stages of a plan, but this is kind of the pitch that most people use, but we have so many data points that say this pitch doesn't work, especially for the communities that need it most. So what would you say to that? Well, right now what's happening is that a lot of the these, if you look at it, if you were to graph it right now, it's like you have New York City, the biggest tourism center, and then it, it's kind of like a, a void when it comes to gaming. I mean, you do have the Yonkers Racino, which is freaking printing money for the state. And then you have to go to Atlantic City or Mohegan Sun or, um, you know, up north in in the state. So what's happening right now is that we're the economic center and the tourism center. And then all these other folks are making money off of like the the folks who want to game. 
And, you know, to me, it's like, well, if this stuff is happening all around us, um, I'd love for us to get that money and then be able to channel it. So, so that, that's to me, the situation we're in, but I'm a hundred percent in agreement that there are a lot of data points that show very negative effects associated with casinos in various communities. So last, I think, set of topics here, what would you do if any of this is still relevant in 2022? about large groups and groups. I'm thinking here uh, in New York, most recently, this has been clusters of uh, Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn who haven't been willing to follow the city's public health guidelines. Um, has the city been appropriately aggressive, uh, too, too laid back? And, and what would your approach be as these sorts of concerns came up? Well, I certainly hope that by 2022, we're uh, largely vaccinated and we're past the worst of this, Harry. Yeah, you knocked on wood. That's wood. good. Uh, because, you know, I mean, it's driving many of the problems we're talking about. And one of the things I'm uh, proposing is that I think we need to help that curve in a particular way. Because one thing I'm very concerned about is that after you, me and Christina get vaccinated, um, what would we feel comfortable doing and not doing? Uh, you know, like, would we feel comfortable going out with friends and family in a restaurant indoors to like a Broadway show, to a concert, to a conference? Because you have to look up at New York City's economy. Like, this is the place where people get together. You know what I mean? Like, like if people don't feel comfortable getting together, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to come back at the scale we want. So what I'm proposing is that we have a very, very quick and efficient way that you can identify that you've been vaccinated on your smartphone uh, or other device. Like you, you know, the vaccination card we get, we just like scan it. And then all it has is like, yep, been vaccinated. And then you can go into a gathering and know that everyone's been vaccinated. You can take your mask off. And New York City then can be a catalyst for people vaccinating because it's like, oh, well, if I want to go like, you know, go to the city and have a meal or go to a show, like I need to get vaccinated and then I need to have this thing. So in that environment, then if you have a gathering like the one you're describing, and then people can very quickly verify that they've been vaccinated, then it's much less of a problem. Like the the issue right now is that- Does that potentially tie in with the muni ideas that you've talked about? Um, Oh yeah, like so- um, uh, And expanding for banking. Yes, yeah. So IDNYC is something that has already done a tremendous amount of good and has a tremendous amount of potential- but uh, I, I do think that a digital version of that um, would be also very helpful, particularly in this time. And the first use case for it is just identifying you know, you know, whether you've been vaccinated and that would allow us to convene much more safely and confidently. But there are other things you could do with it too, like you're suggesting, Harry. Uh, you know, you can, one of the things I've championed is to have all financial institutions recognize IDNYC so that we can reduce the 12% of New Yorkers who are uh, unbanked right now. Like to me, it's insane in the world's financial capital. You have uh, almost a million New Yorkers paying extortionate check cashing and money lending fees. Um, and so if you link that to IDNYC. Um, and, and you do that by jawboning, right? Not by law, by the soapbox. Effectively, I've heard you say. What, well, what, I mean, isn't that what Phil Thompson's working on? Yeah. Uh, that there are other people that are working on, which is fantastic. But the thing I've proposed is that we are a city that does tens of billions of dollars of business with various financial institutions, many of which are headquartered right here in the city, uh, and say, look, if you do business with the city, you have to take IDNYC. You have to allow folks to be able to open bank accounts. Um, Because the the reality is it's too expensive to be poor here and in other parts of the country. And national studies show that if you're unbanked, you are spending on average $3,000 a year on check cashing and money lending and other fees. And, and these are the people I can least afford it. Um, so, so this is a way that we can leverage some of what the city's doing to try and get a- people access to financial services that would be an enormous leg up for them. 
So the penalties of poverty are real. I think, you know, do you have an ID NYC? Um, I do not, but I'm supposed to get one with uh, Carlos Menchaca, I think, next week sometime. Uh, yeah, so that'd be exciting. Well, I mean, and the reason why I ask is because, you know, part of, I think, the critiques of you are that, you know, you're a New Yorker, wink, wink, right? And so a lot of us got IDNYC when it was first available because we wanted to make sure that if the Trump administration came after undocumented immigrants in New York City, they would at least have more quantity that they'd have to sift through, right? So instead of just having undocumented immigrants uh, on the scrolls, they'd at least they'd have a few extra 100,000 New Yorkers that they'd have to get through. So it wouldn't be just an easy net. And so I, I think part of the concern I think some people have are, you know, how invested are you in this city, right? Because you said earlier, you want to run for mayor because you can help. But is it an external help, right? Is it, I've been sort of outside looking in as opposed to I'm in it and I, I have ideas. Because a great concern of myself and many others is not just IDNYC. You can get that fine. You'll get it with Carlos the other week. <laughs> but, you know, also voting. And so there's, you know, there are lots of debates. I'm having them with colleagues now. Some people say it doesn't matter if you vote in municipal elections or not. Like, you're here now. Others, Christina Grant would say, <laughs> well, voting to me is an investment in the production of the city. It's an investment in the future of the city to say... I care about my city council member. I care about the person who represents me in Albany with Andrew Cuomo and his shenanigans. I care about the mayor. As much control as the mayor does and does not have of the budget, just as a leadership piece. So you've been here over two decades. Why is it that your participation has been dormant, to say the least, on a local level and very active and participatory on a a national level? Oh, I feel like uh, living here, being a public school parent, um, you know, my wife is the co-head of the PTA. Like we we engage in ways that I think many New Yorkers can relate to. And I certainly laud uh, all of the people that have been making New York better and stronger over the last number of years, been actively engaged. I'm proud of the fact that I, I started a nonprofit that helped do positive things in different parts of the country. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I helped accelerate awareness around a policy that I think is going to help improve the way of life for tens of millions of people and helped make it so that, you know, at at this point now, the majority of Americans are for a universal basic income, an idea that they probably had never heard of like uh, two years ago. I'm proud of the fact that I helped activate tens of billions of dollars in aid for New York State and New York City by helping Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff win their races in Georgia. You know, it's like, like I've been doing what I thought was the right thing at any given point in time to the best of my ability. And I certainly would never look at someone who was kicking butt here in New York City and say like, hey, you know, like, I love it. I mean, I think it's tremendous. Like, I wish I had done more of it. Um, But I will say that, like, I have been trying to serve in my own way in different respects for years. And I hope that people can look at different forms of service and say, look, that wasn't the way I chose to try and contribute. Like that wasn't the community that like I chose to champion, but I respect like the, the service that other people have put in. So Andrew, thank you again for joining us, uh, for taking the time and, and for going through all this. We're going to see you out with a lightning round, which, uh, You'll you'll get used to those at all the mayoral forums. I, I was about to say <laughs> I was about to say this is the punishment for all of you who want to serve a, as mayor. Or, uh, <laughs> four hours of Zoom forums a day with lightning rounds and people muted. 
Uh, ours will be pretty pretty clean and easy, I think. Um, should there be non-citizen voting in New York City? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I think I'd have to look into this uh, more, honestly. Um, I, I'm all for empowering immigrants, but I think uh, voting uh, is something I'd have to look into before I, I said yes to. Yep. How are you doing? I've seen you tweeting about this with uh, with encouraging are you having success in bringing in independents, small I, and getting them to register as Democrats? I haven't seen the numbers yet, um, but I have some anecdotal info that there are folks that um, are very concerned about uh, this race and they say, hey, look, I got to register as a Democrat to get in on it. So uh, that probably does not apply to most of the people listening to this right now. I'm sure like everyone here is. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty, pretty, we have a very particular audience. Pretty ready to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Should should subways and buses be free uh, for New Yorkers at large, and especially for me, Harry Siegel? I think that um, having it be free actually uh, is not ideal policy because even if you were to try and subsidize it, and I am all for trying to keep fares low, lower for folks that um, aren't, um, you know, making a lot of money. Uh, at a particular time, I think raising fares to success is an oxymoron. Like, you know, like you cannot raise fares to success when it comes to things. But I also think that having even some cost associated with it changes your usage pattern, changes your relationship with it. Um, you know, I've been in different environments where you say to something, it's like, hey, it's free. And then somehow you value it less than if like there's at least some like tiny investment that you might have. Um, you know, so I, I think that that even if we were to subsidize it to a very high degree, like someone should have at least some form of payment associated with riding um, a subway or bus. So you support fair, do you support fair fares? Yes, I do. I think we should expand fair fares. And um, there are a lot of folks who should be enjoying fair fares right now that are not actually taking advantage of it. Um, so we have to do better there. Last three, and these are as mayors. As mayor, would you make every meeting on your daily schedule immediately public? Yes. As mayor, would you continue to release transcripts of all your public appearances? Yes. As mayor, how many parking placards would your administration issue? Far less than the 30,000 or whatever the heck got authorized this last time. Like, what is going on there? You know what I mean? Like, like give someone a parking placard if they genuinely need it for their job and it's actually going to add value to the city. Don't do it as some, like, bizarre form of, like, I don't know like uh, favor trading or whatever the heck Pork. is going on. Yeah. Like that, that is highly uncool. Like that, that actually really gives people a bad vibe. Um, so, you know, I, I would probably look at who has a parking placard now and say like, do you really need this parking placard for your job? Like you want to try and reduce supply. And then if you look around and say that there are certain folks that could really use one um, for their official duties and don't have one, but it's going to be a very, very under control number, Harry. Like, you know, it's like, I do not want to give out a parking placard unless the person genuinely needs it. And I want to figure out what the current inventory is um, and, and see if there needs to be some reallocation um, or, frankly, just like, you know, like retraction or rescinding of a, a parking placard. Sorry, if you've got a parking placard out there, I'm sorry, I might not be your candidate, but, um, you know, say <laughs> la vie. Andrew, thank you again. Um, we're going to leave you with a last grace note on a, a truly intractable problem up till now. Uh, please do fill us in. We started here and then we, we jumped on uh, with, with what you think uh, giving income directly to uh, the most impoverished New Yorkers would uh, would do to deal with some of the problems the city struggled to resolve over many decades. Uh, so you probably heard everyone that uh, my flagship proposal is to put a billion dollars into the hands of the folks who are uh, the most uh, in need here in New York City, I believe we can eliminate extreme poverty 
in New York City. And I think in New York City, we have a unique opportunity to make this happen in a way that improves people's lives, but also pays off. Uh, because the reality is when someone winds up on our streets in New York City, we are in some cases spending tens of thousands of dollars a year per person on various services for that individual. And so if you spend a fraction of those resources keeping someone in a better situation, you probably end up getting a lot of that money back in uh, services you do not need to spend and that you're going to help uh, people find jobs, uh, stay in stable situations. Um, so I'm really excited to be championing this on the largest scale of any community in the country. Uh, it's one reason that uh, Martin Luther King III, uh, Dr. King's son, has um, endorsed me and, and is co-chair of my campaign. Um, and I don't want to stop at a billion dollars a year. Uh, you know, like I think we can activate additional resources from private philanthropy, from others to augment it. Uh, you know, I, I've been trying to show that poverty is uh, something that we can do away with um, and I want to demonstrate that that's possible right here in New York City. Um, and I think given the, the nature of the way our services are constructed, it actually will pay for itself on both a human level and an economic level. Thank you for joining FAQ NYC. Thank you both so much. You're both tremendous. Uh, and I look forward. I'll come back, um, you know, anytime. Um, this was a lot of fun. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. We're also a part of the Brickhouse Cooperative for independent journalists and artists. Our executive producer is me, Alex Brooklyn, and today's episode was mixed, edited, and mastered by Adam Camara. Again, we are taking comments in the form of voice memos if you want to say anything about today's episode, please call 917-475-6010 and leave a message.